Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you want to learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Hi everyone, this week's show is a little bit different than previous episodes. The normal structure of story and action items blended in too well together to have a clean cut between the two. So think of this episode as part one, and at the end of it, it'll be to be continued for the next episode on part two uh, to be released on Friday. So thank you everyone and enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is where I interview people within the multifamily real estate industry and discuss how they create their sound investments. But before I bring in today's guest, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by In Rhythm Multifamily Group's Facebook group. It's where I post the meetups that I'm going to, some of the conversations that I've had, maybe even questions that I've had that I have no idea what, what the answers are. But if you're just looking for a safe place to learn, get access and try and network more, just join the Facebook group at In Rhythm Multifamily Group or go to InRhythmMultifamily.com. And uh, yeah, take action, get vulnerable, join the group. And now for today's guest, he is a direct multifamily loan originator from Lumen Capital, who is responsible for originating multifamily loans across the U.S., primarily Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and FHA slash HUD. As one of the select group of lenders licensed to offer non-recourse agency financing, Lumint is also one of the largest and has built its reputation of excellency on integrity, speed, and certainty of execution. With the Lumint resources behind him, he is acutely focused on building strong relationships with clients to help them achieve their investment goals with first-class financing experience. Please give a warm welcome to David Frotz. Hey, Taylor. Thanks for having me. And, uh, Looking forward to answering some questions and telling everyone a little bit about me and and my avenue in multifamily. Yeah, cool. So thank you for joining us. It's a it's a pleasure. So I first off, how did you go into the lending route first? How did you find yourself with this? Have, was it your dream to become a lender? <laughs> no, <laughs> unlikely that that's the case for anybody. I uh, yeah, for me it was sort of just a lucky accident. Uh, I'd been in banking for a number of years and uh, didn't really like what I was doing and didn't really have a path. And it was a little hard to throw myself into what I was doing because I wasn't in love with it. And um, so I started trying to find a path for myself, uh, something that I could really get into and, and put all my, my effort into, which is, you know, I've always been pretty motivated and had a lot of energy to succeed, but never really before I got into real estate, had anything to kind of put that behind. So just started networking a lot. And, and I initially started looking at jobs, investment consulting, and, and at one point had a uh, case study that I had to put together for an interview for a, a top uh, investment consulting firm. And um, I had to compare and, and contrast two real estate investment companies and, and basically make a recommendation to a potential client uh, about, you know, where they should put their money. And in doing that exercise, I just 
learned so much about real estate and a side of real estate that I had no idea even existed prior to that point. I just thought that real estate was the, you know, the single family residential agent who sells a home to a couple that's going to live in that home for 30 years. And um, I didn't really know much else about it, about commercial real estate. So after that, I just started looking and networking towards getting into to real estate. And I got a job with a, a lender, um, now competitor of mine. Oh, um, beef. Yeah. <laughs> they gave me my first shot. So I, I appreciate that. Um, it, yeah. And, and I started as an analyst and, and kind of just took to the work really easily and, and quickly grew throughout my career. And it ended up being a good move for me. And I initially wanted to be on the buy side. That was back in my mid twenties and just kind of one thing led to another. And and I picked up enough skills and enough expertise that I just kind of kept going down that path and really saw that that was a, a place where I wanted to be. And so you never, you never touched single family loans uh, at all then, right? No, I, I've never made a loan on a single family property. And so, uh, so most of these loans, do you have like a unit size or like a, a transaction size that you, you're mostly dealing with? It sort of depends on, you know, which local bank you talk to or, or what have you. But generally within the industry, commercial multifamily starts at five units mm-hmm. um, where anything below falls into kind of the, the single family or residential category and you qualify for the residential mortgages through Fannie and Freddie, the, you know, the terms you hear when you're talking to a loan officer looking to buy a condo or, or a duplex or something like that. Um, and then it kind of switches over to commercial financing, commercial investment at five units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for us, we're, we're generally focused on transactions that are a million dollars or more as far as a loan balance goes. We can occasionally go below a million dollars but the numbers don't necessarily make sense for us or for the borrower in all, all cases. So those deals we need to look at a little bit closer uh, on the front end before proceeding just for, for the client's uh, sake and for our sake in terms of time and resources. So uh, when we talk about looking closer into the deal, like my understanding is that single, like once you cross that threshold to, to that five unit single family loans um, are vetted completely differently than let's say multifamily loans, right? So what are the main differences that you see and that's out there uh, from getting a single family loan versus a multifamily loan? Yeah. So, so the biggest difference is single family loans are going to generally be recourse loans. So that means if, if you default, they're going to be able to come after you and your other assets, personally guaranteeing the loan, it's going on your credit file you know, you apply to a credit card, they're going to be able to see that you have the mortgage. You apply for a car loan, they're going to be able to see that you have the mortgage. Our loans are non-recourse. And I should clarify, it's not all commercial loans, but I am a, a dust lender. So I lend with Fannie Mae and, and also Freddie Mac. And like you said, FHA and HUD. So oh, so I'm... our loans are all non-recourse. <laughs> I said H-U-D, I mean, it sounded like a total newbie. <laughs> HUD. That's good. I didn't even know uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, uh, so uh, housing and urban development. So that our loans are all non, non-recourse. 
And so that's really a primary difference because then the considerations are very different that we have, our credit team has versus underwriter or credit team at the single family level. So at this, at the residential, residential lending is going to be most focused on debt to income ratio of the guarantor of the homeowner, the person who's purchasing the property. So if they are purchasing a four unit or a three unit or some other investment property, the income from those rental units may still count towards their you know, debt to income ratio, but it really is their personal debt to income ratio that's being used as a driver towards credit worthiness and, and interest rate and that sort of thing. For us, our primary driver, we're looking at this as a business, um, you know, whether it's a, a five unit property or a 500 unit property, from our perspective, it is a, an apartment property that is a business. It's a the business of providing housing and collecting income and, and generating revenue through the rents and the other income sources that, that there are at the property. So we look at the operations of the property and instead of debt to income, we look at essentially what, what we call the debt service coverage ratio, which is the net operating income. So that would be your income over how many times it covers the annual debt service of the loan. So obviously a loan at 6% is going to have a much higher annual debt service than a loan at 3%. So, um, you know, it very much a numbers game, but at the end of the day, that that's kind of what our primary sizing metric is. And then there are lots of other considerations um, that we look at. Uh, we do look at the, the net worth and the liquidity of the sponsorship team, whoever the signers on the note and the guarantors of the loan are going to be, even though it's a non-recourse loan, we still have guarantors sign on the loan in case they commit what we call the bad boy acts, which is basically fraud. Or, you know, Ooh, just, bad boy. Yeah, just, no. just having the property uh, not perform is not a bad boy act. So again, non-recourse in that instance, you commit fraud or you, you know, send us falsified statements, that sort of thing, that that's a bad boy act. So again, we're looking at the, the business operations, the revenue, the net operating income uh, versus the ability to pay the bills for the property. We're looking at it very much like a business. So for single family, it's it, there's, a, there's a huge emphasis on just like the owner being able to pay versus yep. for multifamily five units and up. It's it, it's valued as a business. And, right. and we, we do look at, like I said, the net worth and liquidity, those guidelines, we generally like to see a combined net worth of all the sponsors that's at least equal to or, or greater than the loan amount. Um, and that gives us some comfort that we're not lending to people who don't have any idea what it's like to have an asset or a liability to this magnitude. And then our liquidity requirement is uh, generally nine months of debt service payments, um, which is, you know, if you take, if your annual debt service is 100 grand, then not nine months would would be, or 120 grand, nine months would would then be, you know, the proportional fraction of that. Pretty easy calculation for anyone to see, okay, you know, do I meet this requirement? So so those are our basic requirements. And we look at those as kind of like a, a green light, red light kind of thing. It's great for, our sponsors to have to exceed those by a lot, but the, the loan decision is basically kind of green light or red light if they don't meet that. Okay. There's a, there's a narrative out there that 
it is particularly like, it's a little bit easier to get financing for multifamily loans just because it's like, they, they don't really look at like a, a person, a person's like credit score uh, per se. And it's, it, there's a, a less emphasis on the person versus yes, the person still um, is still important, like the sponsor and the, and uh, being able to qualify for it. But there's more of an emphasis on on the actual business and the property itself, and if it's performing. Now, in your opinion, like, do you think it it is easier to finance a multifamily property versus a single family property? If I were to come new to the game, um, and let's say you know I have one single family house, new to the game, I come in, I come to you and say, you know what, like I want to buy a five unit over here in California. Right? Would I just asked a bunch of different questions. <laughs> sure did. Yeah, I just asked a bunch of different questions. I mean, is it as easy as people say it is? Like, it's just pretty much just on the, like, if the property is going to take care of itself, are these? Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. say it's that easy. I think the people that suggest that commercial, getting commercial financing is easier than residential financing probably follow into, into a couple of different buckets. Number one, the residential financing financing space, from what I understand, has limits as to how many properties you can get financed, um, either through Fannie Mae or through each individual lender. Oftentimes, there are you know the, the local bank or the community bank or the credit union will cut you off after a certain amount of you know outstanding you know debt mortgages payable or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we don't do that we would not cut a borrower off because we had already loaned them a hundred million. And we said no more if they're performing and we feel that they're a good, a good borrower for us uh, that's providing uh, quality housing to tenants around the country. We're, we're going to keep lending to them. Um, And in fact, we're probably going to give them better terms or they're going to have opportunities to get better terms than, than someone that we don't know and that we haven't worked with before. So that's probably one bucket that might think commercial financing is easier. The other bucket, it would be people that are self-employed or unemployed or, mm-hmm. you know, full-time real estate investors because they don't show income. They don't show a W-2 that's consistent, even a house flipper. They might do a couple houses a year um, and they might make 50, 60 grand on a house or something like that, but it's not consistent and it's not regular. So generally, the banks are not going to look very fair, favorably on that. And I've heard, you know, they like to see some seasoning, a couple of years, or you know, at least a, a full tax cycle of income before they count it towards your debt to income. So even for people whose income is growing year to year, you sort of your business, your real estate investments can outgrow what your income is growing at because the banks want to see that it's consistent or that you you're not going to go back to your income from the prior year. For us, the debt service coverage is unique for every property. That resets on every deal. Again, it's we're looking at it like a business, but generally your net worth and your liquidity of you and your partners needs to be sufficient and if it is, you know, we'll keep lending to you for each individual deal. That makes sense. So if you and your partners have a net worth of 2 million dollars, we will close loans with you again and again and again at that you know two million or one point nine million dollar loan amount. As soon as you try to go to a, a five million dollar loan or a twenty million dollar loan, you're not going to qualify by our standards. So we're going to 
we're going to need you to either, you know, you, your net worth is going to need to grow with you or we're not going to be able to keep giving you larger loans. So those are really, I think, probably the two groups that, that think it's easier to get commercial financing. I would say underwriting the financing on the residential side is almost certainly easier from a lender's perspective mm-hmm. because it is just the debt to income, credit score, you know, whatever. The other checkboxes that you fill out on an application like prior bankruptcies and felonies and stuff like that. I mean, those are pretty those are pretty straightforward. We ask a lot of those questions too, but we also have to underwrite the cash flow of the property. We have to underwrite the market, the neighborhood. We look at crime statistics. We look at collections at the property. We look at the tenant base and whether there are concentrations of military or students or particular employees of a particular corporation or anything that could be a risk to the transaction, we evaluate all of that. So our underwriting process generally, you know, start to finish, we're generally going to do 50 to 60 days uh, for, for a loan. And during that 50 to 60 days, it's, it's 50 to 60 days of, of work. A lot of residential uh, lenders will, your loan will take two months, three months to close, but it's because it's at the back of the line, not because it's actively being underwritten for the full uh, period. So, so there is a lot that goes into these loans. Um, and we do, I mean, we do the background checks and just to jump on one thing that you mentioned, we do pull credit on our sponsors as well. So if we see material amount of delinquencies on your credit report, we're going to ask you questions about it. Um, if you have had a foreclosure or any other mortgage workouts, we're going to look at that. If you have collections accounts, we're going to ask about that. And we do run searches as well. So we would uncover if you've had a bankruptcy, we would uncover if you've had a felony. Um, Those sort of things are generally, in most cases, depending on how recent they were, um, are going to be deal killers for that sponsor, just because we need to be careful about the the integrity of the people that we're we're lending to. Because again, these are non-recourse loans. So we don't have the recourse of going back and, and chasing this person down to the ends of the earth, we can generally take the property and that's about it. Oh, so you can't go after anybody. It's, it's, you, you just take hold of the property and then. That's... Yeah. So that's what, that's, that's what yeah. we mean by non-recourse. So, okay. so we, the, the loan is, is secured by the property and that's it. So we don't, we don't lay claim to your, you know, your children's, you know, education fund or my next child. (laughs) Yeah. We don't don't have any of that uh, at our disposal. Now, uh, when, when we're talking about net worth, does, if if people have their houses paid off free and clear now, would that count uh, if it's their primary residence as that's, (laughs) as their net worth requirements? Mm -hmm. It does. Okay. It would. Yes. Yep. Mm, Okay. And yeah, I, so I know I know on on the residential side, or at least I, I I've heard on the residential side that sometimes they don't let you count your your personal residence towards something somewhere somehow. I, I'm not I'm not familiar with it, but we certainly I mean your net worth is your net worth. Um, mm-hmm. So if you've got a, a five hundred thousand dollar home and it's paid off, that's five hundred thousand in your assets column. And you have zero in the liabilities column. Um, whereas if you have a $500,000 home and you still got $250,000 mortgage, your net worth in that very simple instance would only be $250,000, which is hmm. 
the difference between the assets and the liabilities. Okay. Now, the, the other question that came to my mind too is, I mean, now a lot of people are talking about, oh, interest rates are extremely low to make sure to take advantage of it. Now, are these interest rates the same in single family and multifamily? No. You're shaking your head no. now. Okay. No. Without getting too deep into capital markets, interest rates, they're based on something, whether it's a residential mortgage or commercial. I don't know all the ins and outs of, of rates on the residential side, but they're designed for people who are going to be owner-occupants of properties most of the time, unless you're getting like a, a loan from your local bank to buy a quad that you're going to rent out or whatever. I, I don't, you know, banks can kind of do whatever they want with their balance sheet so that they can, they can charge really high rates so they can charge low rates and, and they don't, they may or may not be tied, you know, heavily or loosely to some sort of index. So, but our, our rates for the most part are tied to the treasuries. So if we're talking about Fannie Mae loans, we're talking about maybe a 10-year loan would be tied to the, the 10-year treasury, which just so you know, is, has really blown up in the past few weeks. It's uh, <laughs> probably about 30 basis points higher than it was the first week of February. So, so it's a big jump. 30 basis points mean uh, 0.3 or 3%. 3, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 0.3%. Yeah. 3%. And so, so when, when the 10 year treasury and, and a five year would be based on a five year treasury, seven year on a seven year treasury, that sort of thing. Okay. The treasury right now, let's, say, let's just say that the 10 years at, at 1.3%, obviously your interest rate isn't 1.3%, but the treasury is looked at as kind of the risk-free rate of return, right? That's what somebody could buy treasury bonds for you know 1.3% and essentially they're guaranteed the, the US government's going to pay their debts we hope um and so that's kind of universally known as as kind of the risk free rate and then on top of that there's the spread which the spread includes fees and charges and and the what we call the the guarantee fee that Fannie Mae charges there's the servicing fee that comes to us as the lender, which is covers our costs of doing the asset management, handling the books, reviewing your statements on an annual basis, interacting with you, making sure your ACH is, is set up, and all of the things that go along with asset management and servicing of a loan. And, and those, those are generally fixed, the ones I mentioned. So then there's the investor spread, which is the security. These loans get securitized. Mm-hmm. And large banks and hedge funds and and other buyers of mortgage-backed securities buy these notes, and they demand some sort of additional return above and beyond the risk-free rate that they could get if they just dumped on you know a hundred million into treasuries or something like that. So, so all those things combined add to the to what we call the rate stack, and so your even though the treasuries at one thirty, your rate today could be, you know, 375 or 4% or something like that. Because once you add those other, other items, um, the rate is what it is. And that, that's what you get. That's your note rate. Um, and so the treasuries move up or down and same thing with the investor spread, it moves up or down based on, I don't know, the economic outlook or the capital markets movements of these large institutions that are buying these notes and how much it's basically supply and demand or or you know what they're willing to pay based on what they see as the near term or or long term forecasts of 
interest rates and you know the capital requirements that they have on their end and and whatever their their mandate is for for investment. And by capital markets, what do you mean by capital markets? Just you know the the supply and demand of capital. Um, oh, okay, all right. You know, so you know if you want to borrow money from me as your buddy, I can lend you. 500 bucks and you have the demand and I've got the supply. If I also want my 500 bucks or I think you might not pay me back, I'll charge you more for it. Okay. You know, but if, if, if we've been friends for 30 years, actually probably not in your case, if we've been friends for 20 <laughs> years, you know, I, I might you know, give it to you as an interest-free loan and you just pay me back or something like that. But so, so basically it's just the, the movement of money from one place to another. And then there, you know, there are people like me, like mortgage brokers, like hedge funds and private money lenders, all, all of those people, we all come together to basically play our role in the capital markets. So mm. it's just kind of money moving around. Money moving around. Got it. So, I mean, with, with COVID now, I'm curious to know what it was like on the lending side and how COVID has affected the way you guys are looking at deals. Because I mean, on, on the investor side, a lot of people are saying that it's hard to find deals. And even, even then I've talked to some other investors saying that it's hard to meet the, the reserves uh, requirements for some of these government-backed agency loans. Now, I'm curious to know what you've been seeing on your side and how COVID has affected your side of the industry. Yeah, I mean, it certainly has. I mean, you touched on probably one of the biggest one of the biggest items, which is the debt service reserve, which you know it varies based on loan size and 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 leverage amount, and loan to value, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely we didn't we didn't have that before. I don't know what was it March or April or whenever last year. But frankly, the the implementation of the debt service reserve is what really has allowed us to continue lending, you know, $70 billion a year at you know, 80% LTV. Um, not us. I mean, it, it, loan know, to value each agency, each agency gets a certain yeah. amount and it's, it's, you know, almost a hundred billion every year it changes, but, uh, but basically it's a lot of loan volume and we're lending still max leverage at, you know, 75, 80%. Um, and so having instituted that debt service reserve is what got Fannie and Freddie comfortable with continuing to do that, despite the headwinds and the risks out in the market, such as, you know, rental collections delinquency, mortgage payment delinquency, a lack of buyers earlier on in, mm-hmm. in the uh, COVID um, situation. And then, you know, there was a period of price discovery between buyers and sellers. There's just been a lot of ups and downs uh, that come along with something like this when everybody needs to make decisions for their business. And what Fannie and Freddie decided to do was institute the debt service reserve, which again, allowed them to continue lending all across the country in all markets and uh, still at, at very high leverage. So a lot of banks, even before the pandemic on commercial stuff in certain markets or certain types of assets would be at you know 65 70% LTV you know those those borrowers would generally come our way because we'd generally be providing you know 75 or 80% LTV and to enable us to still do that the debt service reserve was put in place and it's been successful and it hasn't 
you know, there haven't been, there's no been, been nobody that's, that's called me up and said they're really excited about the debt service reserve. <laughs> um, but, uh, but we're not excited about it either. We don't want to, we don't want to collect it. We don't want to hold it. We don't want to have to deal with it either. So hopefully the pandemic clears, clears up and we can send all that money back to our borrowers. But for the time being, that is still a reality of, of our situation. Now, how do you, uh, I mean, I, you know, the, this, I guess this is a big question because you can't really know what's going to happen in the future, but do you have any predictions on when do you think that those reserves will be a little bit more lenient, not lenient per se, but like less, yeah, I guess lenient is, is the word that I'm, that I'm trying to use. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's hard to predict something like this. I mean, I think you might want to ask that question of Dr. Fauci, but um <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I think from what I understand is Fannie and Freddie's position is that as long as there are headwinds ahead of us um, and uncertainty ahead of us, I mean, we still don't have a vaccine that's widely distributed, you know, to everybody. You know, it could be many months before the majority of people are vaccinated. So I think the pandemic is still still out there and still dangerous for for people, but also for business, and so. That I think needs to clear up first, from what I understand, and then once the virus is mostly cleared up, I think we, Fannie and Freddie, are going to want to see the economy get cleaned up a little bit too. And that's not when I say the economy, I don't mean the stock market. I mean you know people having money to put food on the table and pay rent um, and you know buy other necessities and things like that. So I think you know across the country there have been. The majority of people have been, you know, struggling throughout this period because, you know, a lot of people work hourly jobs, maybe had their hours cut. A lot of people work jobs that rely on tips and, you know, there's not as much social activity out there. So like for a lot of reasons that we all know, um, the economy is, has been impacted and, and, you know, we don't believe in, in putting people out on the street into the cold um, just, be, just because they can't pay their bills at the moment. Um, And so obviously there are a lot of guidelines and regulations that have been put in place in various places around the country that, you know, the the eviction moratoriums and things like that. So the economy is still very much on the minds of, of the regulators and and the people making the decisions at the top. So I don't, I I can't really predict it. Um, (laughs) But all I can say is, like I said, Fannie, Freddie, and all of us lenders, we don't want to hold these reserves either. So as soon as the powers that be think that the the situation is clearing up enough to send that money back or to stop collecting it, I'm sure that that, that will be done. Interesting. Very curious. Very, very interesting. Now, I mean, stay tuned. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> we're all living through it for the first time. So, I mean, I, I would just say just everyone needs to remember that, that this is sort of uncharted waters for for me. I mean, I've never seen this in my career, um, this type of thing, whether it be a, a virus or anything else. I've started in the business after financial crisis in uh, you know, 2006 or 2008 or whatever date you want to use. But um, I, I started after that. So I, I have only observed. I have never been a party to that economy. That's good to know. Good to know. Good to know. Now, in your position like as a lender now, like what is your main focus uh, moving forward 
from now on? Like, what are you currently working on? Cause I, I will also congratulations on the refinance too. I saw that on, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I try to, I try to post my deals. Um, wh- whenever I get them done, I, uh, sometimes I, I'll give them, give the, the borrower a shout out if, if I know them really well, but sometimes people like to stay, stay hidden, but Say yeah, no, it's always, it's good. It's good to share that stuff. Every deal has a story. That one in particular is a perfect example of what I just mentioned about, um, it was a, a 75% cash out, no debt on the property. And, uh, we were able to basically give this borrower a million bucks in cash and, you know, the debt, she had to put money into the debt service reserve, but you know, that's still her money. And that's the sort of thing where, uh, we wouldn't necessarily be able to do that if we didn't have that security. So, yeah. But so are you asking for me personally, what's next or what am I focused on in the lending space right now? Or what are, what are Fannie and Freddie doing and what's my company doing? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm going to be completely honest and even just say this during the recording. I was like, I'm trying to figure out if I wanted to, cause I wanted to cut this episode. Cause I have a lot of uh, questions to ask when it comes to like action items and like best practices when it comes to, you know, when, when approaching a lender, what's the, like yeah. the, the best things to say, the best, uh, the worst things to also say, and then also just like what we can do. But I'm, I'm thinking of just like combining just the, the episode just because it's flowing so, <laughs> so well. Um, okay. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, it, all these are, are really, really fascinating to, to me. And I mean, this is a, something that, you know, I'm not too well aware of and I feel like I can't really talk about this or read yeah. about this uh, in, in a book and try and learn on, on my own. So I, you know what, I think I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to turn this into just one, one long episode. If yeah. If you don't Go mind, for me, it. If you don't mind. Hey um, man, you're the captain of this ship. So. Yeah. 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 So one thing that I really respect about you and, and why I gravitate towards you is just because of your willingness to help. Like, you know, I, I came, I, I think I reached out to you uh, through, well, who did I hear from? I heard from Mike Costantis. Uh, shout out to Mike Costantis. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> he told me about you and, uh, and how you helped him out uh, for one of his deals. Um, and so I figured, okay, that's that's just my end. But even though I didn't have any experience, I was just very curious. Like you still spoke to me. Now, I'm sure that's not the case for a lot of investors coming up to you and maybe there there's could be some posturing or not posturing and they're just trying to get your help. But I was wondering, well, first off, like what are the worst ways that people can approach you uh, and try that are trying to work with you? Yeah, I like to think, and I, I certainly hope that I'm pretty approachable. So um, I think, I think one of the things that I would just start off with saying is that I think when you're new in the industry, um, any industry, anyone really in any facet of life, but uh, sometimes it's tough to, you think you're going to talk to someone who's a professional, they're, they're an expert in, in their field, and you know you're not. And so it's a little nerve wracking. Oh, well, maybe this person is too busy, or maybe they don't have the time, or maybe they think I don't know what I'm talking about, or what do I say, or how do I open the conversation, or, or you know, are they going to give me the time of day? And I think certainly some of that's legitimate fear because I think we've probably all had 
the experience where we reach out to someone that we really want to talk to, or we think could add a lot of value to something. Mm -hmm. Um, and they either blow us off or they don't return our calls. They just, they, they act like we don't matter. And so first thing I would say is I I'm sure there are plenty of people that are not doing what you did, which is reach right out to me and say, Hey, can I set up some time with you? I'll make it quick. I'll, I won't be a burden, but I just want to, want to talk to you. And I, and I'm sure there are lots of people out there that, that are not doing that because they don't want to get shot down or they don't want to feel like a burden or, or waste someone's time, which you don't want to waste anybody's time. But my hope is that I am approachable. And, and if anyone is listening to this that wants to reach out, they can certainly shoot me an email and we'll set something up. But yeah, I mean, for, for me, I mean, I, I, when I talk to people um, like you, I mean, you, you may not do a deal for a few months. You may not do a deal for a couple of years my hope is that I, I hope it's not just a couple you. of years. Well, I was <laughs> a lot say, sooner. It takes a long time. It takes a long time for, for people. No, it really does. Yeah. I mean, everyone's different. I mean, some people are have already done some some deals, and they're just trying to elevate themselves into into the commercial business. Uh, some people are just getting started. They read a book and they fell in love with real estate. So, point is, by talking with you, I get good information into your mind and set you off on a good path that's going to help you be more successful. And, and the hope there is that that's going to turn around and eventually it's going to give me some points um, down the road, whether it's, you know, you get, you and I get to know each other and we become great friends or we get to know each other and you start doing deals and I start being your lender or you introduce me to someone because you like talking with me and they do a deal with me. Um, or they become my best friend, whatever it is, right? So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, uh, what I like most about my job is these conversations. I like talking to uh, to investors. I like working through deals and seeing, you know, I like, I like traveling to see new markets. You know, I like yeah. um, doing a deal in a market I haven't done before. I like doing a deal in a market that I know really well. I like all of that stuff. So conversations with people like you um, or someone who's done, 200 million in business. I mean, I, I enjoy them all the same. They're different, but I, that's really what I like about my job. So it's not, it's no sweat off my back to, um, or skin off my back to, uh, mm. to talk with, with people that are looking for a little bit of guidance. Yeah. Now for the people that like are, are ready to do deals and one, I mean, it, also, too, on a side note, like I, I really do appreciate you just like taking the time to actually talk to me um, as someone that is new and trying to, you know, jump into this industry uh, just because, yeah, no, there's there's a there's a little bit of a lack of direction and there's a lot of questions that, you know, I definitely was afraid to to ask. And so, you know, I'm appreciative just also for this for the time that we spent with previous conversations and then also for this uh for you coming on to the show and sharing your knowledge with my audience. So, so thank you. Thanks for listening to the multifamily artist podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. 
If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.